You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere, and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. I'm Ruthie Fearberg, and this is Why We Theater, the podcast that digs into the onstage works we love to make the offstage change we need. After all, that is Why We Theater. Hello, everyone. I hope you are all hanging in, staying healthy and well and warm. While you wait for the next full episode of Why We Theater, which is going to be fantastic, I decided to re-release an episode from season one that has been banging at the forefront of my brain. That episode is If I Forget an American Jew's Anti-Semitism and Tribalism. The episode features playwright Stephen Levinson, who wrote If I Forget, and experts Judah Isseroff and Rabbi Shuli Paso. We recorded this conversation September 4th, 2020. The episode was originally released October 2nd, 2020. Today is February 17th, 2022. And wow, time changes everything and nothing. First, time does change audio quality, so please forgive the less than stellar audio from the early days of the podcast. We're constantly improving, but the content of this conversation makes it well worth it. If you haven't heard it before, please, please listen. And so in terms of content, I think it's crucial to resurrect this conversation. As you'll hear Stephen and I discuss, If I Forget premiered Off-Broadway in 2017. Stephen had begun writing it in 2011. The position and safety of Jews, the public prominence of anti-Semitism, shifted in those years. And then it shifted again from 2017 to 2020 when we spoke. And now it has shifted again between 2020 and 2022. So I want to give a little context about where I was and how I was feeling entering into this conversation. I fell in love with this play when I saw it in 2017 because Stephen articulated my inner thoughts on stage. Because even though my own spirituality is very strong, even though I go to synagogue regularly, I celebrate all of the Jewish holidays, I have the occasional Shabbat dinner with friends, I wear my Jewish star everywhere for people to see, I still felt like those weren't the things that were holding the Jewish people together. In America, it felt like the thing that distinguished us was our common risk, that if another Holocaust ever happened, we'd all be lumped in together and killed. And that's what made us Jews. And at the time, 
in 2020. I saw this as a problem of Jews and Judaism, that it was our own emphasis on the Holocaust that caused us to define ourselves this way. And now, well, I do think adjustments should be made within the Jewish community, within Jewish education, and everything that you'll hear me talk about in this episode, but I also feel more compassion towards my own people because it's our current and very valid fear that keeps this historic trauma so viscerally present. Our world makes it difficult to backburner the Holocaust in our minds. Our world makes it difficult to define ourselves another way. Also at the time of this recording, I was conflicted because I felt like I didn't want to make the episode, quote, only for Jews. I wanted to ensure people of all backgrounds could gain something from this episode. I was worried the episode would be too Jewish. And although we go deep into Judaism in this discussion, I also felt the need to zoom out and talk about tribalism. And I don't regret that. I think it's incredibly valuable to this situation. But it also caused me to pause and notice that in the Color Purple episode that I just released February 3rd, 2022, I leaned into the specificity of a Black American experience and the generational trauma of enslaved peoples and their descendants. So just a reflection I'm having and I wanted to share with you. Sometimes it is easier to harangue your own people for holding on to trauma than it is to be compassionate to your own people. And that's something that we should all strive for is more compassion to all people. Some of this comes with the maturity of the podcast. I've definitely had more time to hone the mission. I've had more experience hosting episodes and conversations. But some of that also comes with the very real worry that I'm afraid to spotlight oppression of Jews. Because after all, I enjoy many privileges, including white privilege because of how I look. So saying I'm oppressed can feel strange. But there is also the reality that I think about All the time, what country should I move to if, quote, things got bad? And now the confusion about Jews has hit the mainstream media, most recently with Whoopi Goldberg. Listening to Whoopi's comments firsthand, and I will link to the clip in the show notes, I do not believe she's an anti-Semite, or at least I don't believe these comments are enough to determine that she is or she isn't. What her comments demonstrate is a confusion and a common one at that. She said, and I quote, the Holocaust isn't about race. It's not about race. It's about man's inhumanity to man. Then she continues, the minute you turn it into race, it goes down this alley. Let's talk about it for what it is. It's about how people treat each other, end quote. The thing is, it's about both. Things don't always have to be one or the other. And the reason I'm re-releasing this conversation now is because the four of us get into an engaging and illuminating discussion, a very intellectual and philosophical debate about Judaism. Are we a religion? Are we a race? Are we an ethnicity? Are we a people? If you've ever been confused, this panel will help. We do answer that question. I also urge you to pay close attention to Judah's comments about the relationship between anti-Semitism and anti-racism towards the end of the episode, which directly addresses this comment that Whoopi Goldberg made. And this idea or question of, are Jews white? Deborah Messing also published a tweet that piggybacks on our ideas, and I'll link to that in the show notes. 
I have to say, I wish Whoopi Goldberg had not been suspended. I wish The View and America had taken this as an opportunity to talk about this, to learn about Jews and Jewish identity, and specifically American Jewish identity. Because what I've learned in the past year and a half since this original recording is that, yes, it can be dangerous to build your identity around what someone else, i.e. Hitler, says you are. And yet, it is undeniable that this trauma and that identity definition is part of our history. I think at the time of the podcast recording, I looked to my panel to answer how we, the Jews, can fix this for ourselves. How do we repair our own identities so that it is not solely about trauma? And yet, in the Color Purple panel, I asked my experts what members of the Black community and members of non-Black communities could do to help heal generational trauma. In my own circumstance, I wanted to know how to avoid it, and I wanted to know what I had to do. But I think this conversation with Stephen, Shuli, and Judah reveals both what Jews can do and what non-Jews can do to heal, to create safety, to fight anti-Semitism, and to understand Jewish identity. You know, I look back and I think about what's happened in these few years. In 2017 in Charlottesville, white nationalists chanted, Jews will not replace us. In 2018, Jews lost their lives at the Tree of Life Synagogue in Pittsburgh. In 2021, quite frankly, January 6th changed everything for me as a Jew. And just a few weeks ago, there was a hostage situation in Dallas-Fort Worth, Texas at a synagogue. Harvey Firestein was actually the first person to articulate it that way to me, that Jews are not white, when he was doing the play Bella Bella about Bella Abzug. So according to a white supremacist or white nationalist, Jews are not white. The concept of whiteness Jews do not fit into that. Some of us have whiter skin, and the true can be said of other ethnic groups that you have white skin, but that doesn't make us white. And then again, some of us are black, brown, Asian. Jews are everywhere in every color. The conversation you're about to hear helps illustrate why Jewish identity can be so confusing, especially to non-Jews. It addresses how we can teach and learn about the Holocaust without it being our sole characteristic. It addresses anti-Semitism and Zionism and anti-racism. Right now, I feel like the world changes every hour, both in terms of actual occurrences and our attitudes towards them. So I hope you find this re-release and reinvestigation useful. I bet if I listened to it again in a couple months, my thoughts would change again and maybe yours would too. So I'm always here to continue the dialogue at Why We Theater. And for now, enjoy If I Forget. Today we welcome playwright Stephen Levinson to talk about his play, If I Forget. This is another play that felt extremely personal to me. So you're getting back-to-back personal episodes. Act one opens in the year 2000. The play focuses on a Jewish family as three adult children, Holly, Michael, and Sharon, return to their parents' house in Maryland for their father Lou's 75th birthday. Michael, the middle child, is a Jewish studies professor. He recently wrote a book called Forgetting the Holocaust about how Judaism has become a religion haunted by death and ghosts, unified by fear and the phrase never forget, 
rather than the religious ideals or customs. The play and this fictional book are intentionally controversial. In the play, Michael's sisters, Holly and Sharon, are deeply offended, but no one more than Michael's father, who actually liberated Dachau, one of the concentration camps in World War II. When I first saw the show Off-Broadway in New York, it mesmerized me. It's a fascinating piece about how contemporary Judaism manifests and how it survives. Stephen articulated so many of my own questions about the foundation of American Jewish identity, our relationship to Israel as American Jews, what even makes a Jewish home, and who gets to weigh in on these things, as Michael's character is married to a non-Jew. We also explore feelings about life in a country where acts of anti-Semitism are reportedly on the rise, and living in an American culture which suddenly feels defined by both the need to belong to a tribe while being plagued by tribalism. I'm excited to welcome Rabbi Shuli Paso and scholar Judah Isaroff to help us navigate all of this today. You can watch If I Forget online at broadwayhd.com. I find it very fitting this episode will air after Rosh Hashanah, the Jewish New Year, and Yom Kippur, the Jewish Day of Atonement, and during the extended period we call the Yamim Noraim, known as the High Holy Days, which is marked specifically for reflection on our past and manifestation of desires and promises for the future. And as we actually discuss throughout the episode, these questions about American Jewry, the Holocaust, identity, Israel, they're for all of us to contend with, Jews and non-Jews alike. Steven Levinson, I'm so happy to see your face. <laughs> I'm so happy to see yours. Oh, gosh. I have been thinking about this play since I saw it. I think, I guess it was back in 2017, off-Broadway at Roundabout. And, you know, it was a miss amidst the Dear Evan Hansen madness, but another brilliant and totally different play. Mm-hmm. So... I know that if I forget is set, you know, in 2000 or and early 2001, but when did you first start writing the play? I started writing it in 2011. And so I know that you often write in order to grapple with questions that you're personally dealing with. What was the question, if there was one, that you were grappling with that inspired this play and what prompted that question at the time in 2011? The, there were a lot of questions that were swirling around in my head and that, that have been swirling around in my head since I was, I guess, a, a kid about um, mm-hmm. being Jewish and uh, being part of a family and those two things mm-hmm. being sort of inextricably linked and uh, being part of a history and um and what all of that means. The the story in the play, there's a story in the play about um, the family's store that they owned in Washington, D.C. and how it burned down in the 68 riots. Um, mm-hmm. And that, that was something that happened to my family and that was always part of the like lore of my family. Mm. And um, it was always something that we talked about or didn't talk about um, and something I found fascinating. So originally I wanted to write a play about that. Um, because it, that always felt really fascinating to me because it was this incredibly traumatic moment for my family. Um, 
and also an incredibly traumatic moment for the country and in overlapping, but not quite the exact same ways. Right. Um, right. And so that's really where it began. And then, and then as I began writing it, it became kind of bigger than that. You know, another thing that I, I, I was thinking a lot about was like, um, there were, there were so many plays and there are so many plays about Jews and about being Jewish and so much literature about being Jewish and the, the literature and the culture that I absorbed since I was a kid was a lot about assimilation and the perils mm-hmm. of assimilation and the struggles to re- retain one's Jewishness or not. And it felt to me like those issues were my parents' issues and no longer the issues that I was dealing with or thinking about, which which had more to do, I felt like, with with politics and history and sort of like what it means to, to be Jewish and American when when that question of religion has has almost been settled for a lot of people. Do you know what I mean? It's like, it's not, yeah. for better or worse, it's not the agonizing thing that I think it was for um, Jews of a certain generation. Like, do I believe or do I not believe? I think for, for people of all different kinds of religions, religion has, has, has changed. Um, mm-hmm. um, and, and the idea of assimilation has changed, you know, like, like uh, for better or worse, my family decided to assimilate a long time ago. Like I didn't grow up feeling outside of, American culture. And so yeah. I wanted to write about what I felt were the things that my family was fighting about all the time and um, <laughs> the, the things that we were grappling with. And if I can ask, like, what was your Jewish upbringing? What were the pieces that resonated with you and what frustrated you? I grew up, um, I grew up mostly going to a reform synagogue. Like we always belonged to a synagogue, my family. And mm-hmm. um, we belonged to a reform synagogue for a while. Then we belonged to a reconstructionist synagogue for a while. And so we kind of bounced around. Um, and religion, like in some ways, religion was a very central part of our lives. Like we actually like mm-hmm. lit the candles almost every Friday night. And we celebrated all the major holidays. You know, we weren't yeah. like super observant. Um, but, but it was a part of our lives and it may, there was a lack of sort of like spiritual sustenance that I found in what Mm. I was given. Um, I learned a lot about history, you know, and I learned a lot about where I came from and the traumas of the past. And I felt like I learned very little about my current relationship with the divine or the, the bigger than me. Um, so that was something that that I I think is sort of interesting. Like, I, I think there was something very ecumenical about the approach that, that was, that, that I had, you know. Right. Which is what comes through in the, in the play with this discussion of, you know, the, is the thing linking us this traumatic history or is it customs and food and practice and belief? And even that quote, when, when, uh, Michael, you know, says to his sister, Holly, you know, you're an atheist. And she's like, I am not. Do you believe in God? That has nothing to do with it. Yes. And it's like, you know, <laughs> that for me was like, that was so much part of my, I, I had, we had family that was more, much more observant than we were and kept kosher. And I once asked my uncle if he believed in God and he said, no, but he was kosher mm. And I, I couldn't square that. I couldn't make sense of that. And I still find that. Yeah. And, and that's, I think that's something that's unique, at least as far as I know, to, to Jewish people. Like, like 
right. like that idea of like, I practice, but I don't necessarily believe, but I don't know, you know, like that feels very Jewish and in, mm-hmm. I don't know. It's interesting. Yeah. Well, there's the joke of like, you know, even our, we can't even make up our mind about our descriptor. That's why we're Jewish. Right. 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 I love it's that. Like, it's yes. a Jewish joke. Yes. Um, but you know, Michael, Holly and Sharon as the three siblings within this family, like all have very different relationships to their Judaism with Holly being kind of, you know, like she goes Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, but like really seems pretty disengaged otherwise, Yeah. but like more apathetically disengaged. Whereas Michael is definitively secular and actively disengaged yes. from a spirituality and more of the intellectualism. And then Sharon is like actually a very observant, belongs to a synagogue. Her rabbi is her spiritual leader kind of thing. So I'm wondering, like, is that representative of your own disparate pieces of you or was it people in your life? Well, that's really interesting. I mean, I think, I guess, yes, would be my answer <laughs> to, to both of those things. You know, um, yeah, I think so, actually. Because um, there are people in my life that that I see in these characters. And, the, and then there are pieces of myself in, in each of them. And I always try to write plays, like, where I never want it to be obvious, because it isn't obvious to me who, like, the me character is in it. Like, who the... Uh-huh. Like, even though Michael is sort of the protagonist, like the things he says are not necessarily things that I agree with or I'm endorsing. And I want everybody to be wrong in their own ways, you know, and everybody mm. to have blind spots. And to me, that's kind of the fun of drama versus so like an essay. That you put it that way though, because so many playwrights say kind of the inverse. I want you to believe that everybody is right. 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 So it's, inter- it's just interesting that you phrase it. I, I, I want there to be the possibility that everyone's wrong. Yes. Yes. Yeah. What did you learn, though, from going, I guess, deeper into each of those personas and viewpoints? I mean, there were times when I was writing the play that I wrote things that I was uncomfortable with and that I Mm. kept writing anyway. Um, Like like I wanted to push. I wanted to push myself and push. I mean, Michael's whole argument about forgetting the Holocaust felt to me like it's a provocation because he's trying to be provocative. But it is also a provocation. And it's like... Um, and I guess, you know, something that was very interesting in the development of the play was, was that the world changed as, as I was writing it, Mm -hmm. um, as we all know. And when I started writing it up until I would say 2016, like up until like the last few months of the election, probably like there was a certain world that I felt we were living in where I did Mm. agree with a lot of what Michael said about, you know, this, I grew up with so much fear about the Holocaust happening again and so much fear about latent anti-Semitism and, you know, like wondering which neighbors would hide us in the attic and like that kind of thing. And it felt paranoid and it felt, it felt like Jews have achieved such prominence and such stature in the United States. And then all of that kind of the last few months of 2016 into the first few months of 2017, when the play premiered, suddenly like I, I felt like, Oh, have I been wrong all of this time? Like, I think Charlottesville was around then. And it was sort of like, yep. Oh, all of this, like, which is, I guess a position that as a playwright, I, I kind of not as a person, but as a playwright, I'm interested in being in, which is where I'm not sure 
uh, yeah. which is right. I'm not sure. Was I deluded or, you know, and I think that's, that question has only become, you know, stronger in the last few years for all of us in different ways. Like how deluded have we been? Um, and I say we sort of broadly assuming a certain kind of person, but like, uh, yeah. a certain left leaning sort of person on in the United States, like the idea that progress is something that is inevitable and that keeps happening. And like, were we, were we naive? Yeah. I'm interested to know about some of the conversations that were happening in the rehearsal room too, because, um, two of the three kids are played by non-Jewish actors Mm. and in the original production. And yet, both Kate Walsh and Maria Dizia like feel very Jewish to me. And obviously, you know, your audience is going to be like while off Broadway in a subscription theater. So you will probably have many Jews. It will also be mixed. So what were you saying and conveying to them to lead to this authenticity? And what were they asking you about in terms of like, defining and embodying Jewishness. Well, I feel like for both Kate and Maria specifically, their backgrounds in sort of like Irish and Italian Catholic respectively households, like they didn't Mm -hmm. really need a lot of coaching from me on what, on what those kinds of family dynamics are. They were, they both came from loud houses with a lot of (laughs) arguing and love and closeness and like all of those things that are Jewish too. So that that was all pretty clear. And then, you know, the director was Dan Sullivan, who's not Jewish yep. also. Yep. Um, I guess with all of those people, like it, it also, it, it forced me to be honest and and to stay honest and like make sure that what I was saying actually resonated with people that weren't me. Hmm. And similarly with Jeremy Shamos, I mean, I don't know how observant or not observant he is, but I do know that he was born to Jewish mm-hmm. parents. Were, what were the conversations like with him about, you know, say, saying some of the things he had to say? Like, I remember I was in college. I took this class called Reacting to the Past, and mm. we were talking about the Israel-Palestine conflict, and our job was to inhabit roles. And of course, yeah. like, you know, all the Jewish kids were assigned to be Palestinian roles and all of the, you know, Muslim and Arabic and Arab identifying students were assigned to be the Jewish roles. And I remember like personally grappling with like, how am I arguing this case academically and how does that affect my real life? So I'm wondering what your conversation. Well, there's definitely something, I mean, that actually like, that actually does make me think a little bit about rehearsals and with like, Kate and Maria and other people that weren't Jewish in the company. Like there is this thing that I feel like those issues, particularly Israel, Palestine, um, Mm -hmm. there is a visceral quality to the reaction that, that Jewish people have about it. That is like sort of undeniable. And I think, I think regardless of where you stand on it, there, there's, it hits someplace very deep and like, it sounds as academic as it can sound. It is, it is personal. And part of the idea and the play and part of what I enjoyed about writing, it was like all of these political, spiritual, historical things are really, they're both true and they really are talking about those things, but they're also talking about one another and their relationships to their own pasts and to their own histories. And so even when it seems really abstract, 
it's really like there's another level that the play is operating on where Michael is really talking about his guilt about his mother and not being there for Mm. her when she was suffering. What are our responsibilities to our parents? Like uh, on a very simple level, what are our responsibilities to our elders? No, that it's a play about legacy. Like, like, and then this idea in the play of like the Jerusalem syndrome, which comes in like uh, with their daughters, sort of like what I found interesting about that was like, it sort of seems to suggest that there is something intrinsically magical about certain places or certain things that like defies what Michael is saying, which is that a place is a place, a store is a store. It doesn't matter. Like, are there things that we don't see that are real? Um, yeah. And I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) I think that's the most exciting, the most exciting thing is the possibility. Yes. Right. Um, the crux of the play is, you know, or at least through the lens that we're talking about today are the back-to-back scenes that happen at the end of act one. Um, He gets really worked up talking about the book that he wrote called Forgetting the Holocaust, um, which is a fictitious, Stephen Stephen created that, um, about the relationship between American Jews, Israel, and the Holocaust. We are actually going to hear Michael's monologue as performed by Jeremy Shamos, courtesy of Roundabout Theater Company, Broadway HD, and Stephen himself. Take a listen. We learned all the wrong lessons from the Holocaust. We learned that the world hates Jews, that the world will always hate Jews instead of what we should have actually learned, which is that nationalism is a sickness and it is lethal. And the book argues that the only way we can escape what has essentially become at this point a religion and a culture of, frankly, death and death worship, a culture that finds its meaning and its reason for being in the charnel houses of Europe, the only way we can get past that is if we forget it actively. We stop making movies about it and writing books about it and just celebrating it, venerating it. Like it's because otherwise, if we don't, I feel I argue at length in the book. If we don't forget the Holocaust now, if we don't begin to disentangle ourselves from our own obsessional neurosis, then we'll be, this will be the end of us. This will be Our last chapter as a people, if we can even call ourselves that anymore, when the only thing that connects us to one another, that connects us to ourselves even, are ghosts. I want to take that in. Because watching it and hearing it, it's intense, but there are pieces of it that resonate for me. And I am someone who believes so much in... um, in witnessing, in hearing the story so we don't forget it. I'm that person that watches every movie, reads every label in a Holocaust museum, and yet I do feel weighed down by it. And I definitely want to get into with our experts, but you go from that to this, the very, you know, he's basically screaming, and then it goes directly to the scene between him and his father, who was an American soldier in the army who liberated Dachau. And then you he, you hear him talk about the atrocities of what he saw in the camp and you know how you don't understand and that history is an abstraction for you, but for me, it's real. Talk to me about writing those scenes and did they always come to you in tandem? That's a really good question. I don't remember is the short answer. <laughs> I, I mean, I know I read that thing about Dachau 
um, that I that really haunted me, which, which, which is the story that he tells, which is that the prisoners initially, there was a moment where the prisoners began when they were liberated, began killing the German guards. Um, mm-hmm. and it was essentially like a massacre. Um, and the American troops didn't do anything really to stop them until they finally did. Um, and what I, what, what kept coming for me in writing the play and what, um, what I found fascinating and troubling and, and powerful was this idea that like, that, that the cycle of violence continues, like, is that, was that wrong of the prisoners to, to, to murder those guards? And like, do yeah. I think it was wrong? I don't, I don't know. Whenever I have these abstract arguments or think abstractly about history in any way, you then, when you're confronted with the actual, what it actually looked like and what it actually smelled Mm -hmm. like and like the idea of bodies, you know, like the, like when you see those images, it's not abstract. It's not like, these are not, these are not philosophical questions only. Like you have to, you have to somehow be able to hold both of those things in your head and I, mm-hmm. and Michael can't do that. And I, and Lou can't do that either, which, which I feel like, I don't know. I feel like I'm trying to do all the time these days of like, like trying to think clearly about what's happening in the world and in our country and also grappling yeah. with the like reality, the lived reality in our bodies of what's happening, you know? Yes. And that like, I can't quite, I can't quite swear those two. Yeah. The visceral and the intellectual for yeah. sure, for sure. Um, the, you know, with the play taking place in 2000, 2001, you reflecting on it in 2011, it premiering in 2017, now we're in 2020. Do you feel that we're still identifying our, or that there is a section of Jews who are still identifying themselves in this way? I could sort of only speak from my own experience, which was so much, it was so much about anti-Semitism and the Holocaust. Uh, that, that was so much of, of how I learned to identify myself as a Jew. Mm-hmm. Um, and not that that was necessarily intentional, but that that's what I came away with as a kid was feeling yeah. threatened and in danger because of who I was. And that, um, and again, because I didn't have that necessarily that spiritual part of it or like what I, what I knew in my bones. And like people said this was essentially like, whether you think you're Jewish or not, Hitler would think you were Jewish, you know? Yeah. And I feel like that, that idea, I don't know, is that a destructive idea? I think in some ways it is because like to build your identity around a wound um, only it is is tricky. That resonates for me. Well, on that note, okay, let's get some other voices in the room to expand People that upon actually this. know what they're talking about. <laughs> no, you know what you're talking about too. Well, thank you. We like artists and experts <laughs> in conversation. Um, 
I'm going to welcome our two experts for today. I'm so excited to have Rabbi Shuli Paso, who is the Director of Community Engagement at B'nai Jeshurun Congregation in New York City. She is also a former Hebrew school in classroom educator, so she'll be able to talk a little <laughs> bit about what we teach kids in Hebrew school. Welcome, Shuli. Hi. So great to be here. Thank you so much for including me in this conversation. Absolutely. And then we have Judah Isroff is a PhD candidate at Princeton University, working specifically on questions of anti-Semitism, Jewish politics and theology, and is working on a dissertation tied to Hannah Arendt, who uh, Hannah Arendt, who was actually mentioned in the play. So there you go. So, I mean, I think, you know, what Stephen was grappling with and and what resonated with me so much was that he articulated this personal struggle for me in growing up where I I felt this same way a lot of the time constantly taught in Hebrew school about the Holocaust and yet were we reading the Bible um and and told that, I mean, I felt like the single most important part of my Jewish upbringing was the communication of the duty to marry a Jew so that we would not go extinct. I guess like rewinding even a bit from that, like how do you define what it is to be a Jew? This question of like Holly's like, I don't believe in God. Does that have anything to do with it? Like how do you think of it? How do you think structures should think about the identity? I feel like I have a responsibility to, first of all, apologize on behalf of all Jewish professionals for the experience of your Jewish education, (laughs) even though I was not a Jewish professional at that time. Uh, You know, I think that your experience is not is not an uncommon one in many American Jewish circles. And there's a a great sadness to that. I I personally feel that. Um, Just to speak for a moment from my own experience, as someone who grew up as the grandchild of Holocaust survivors Mm. um, on my mother's side, but also third generation American on my father's side, you know, I sort of had those two narratives coming together And I grew up in a home that was very observant. We belonged to an Orthodox synagogue and I went to Jewish day school. And I think that despite obviously having the the stories of my grandparents uh, as part of my family stories and hearing them at at different moments and interviewing them for school. um, And I, I think they did, you know, talk a little bit about the idea of we survived, and so we have to continue this this religion. Um, there's an obligation in the face of our history. Mm. Um, I actually never experienced Judaism as a whole to be a response to the Holocaust, right? And, and which mm-hmm. makes sense because Judaism existed for thousands of years before the Holocaust. So, right, right, um, and and I think partly because I did grow up in an observant Jewish home with parents who were very who found a lot of meaning in the ritual, in prayer, Mm. in community, I'd say that was my primary understanding of why one would be Jewish, um, because there was a lot of great stuff in it. Um, And also, you know, there was a sense in in my family, at least, of uh, there's a a religious obligation, there's, there's divine 
some kind of divinity in the Torah and in Halakha and Jewish law. And so that informs our, uh, you know, our commitments. Mm-hmm. Um, but I agree that, you know, even within Orthodox communities, uh, there isn't as much of a uh, conversation around God and where is God in my relationship to performing the mitzvot, to celebrating holidays, even to prayer. Um, mm-hmm. There was an article a number of years mm-hmm. ago about the, this, the phenomenon of social orthodoxy, right? <laughs> if you saw this, you know, what no. is it that keeps people going to orthodox shuls and keeping Shabbat and, and dressing a certain way? And this is sort of more in the modern orthodox realm, um, that it's really, it's, it's a social peer pressure. My personal way of identifying Jewishly is is definitely religious. Uh, that's front and center for me and my mm-hmm. own identity and my own Jewish life. Um, and yet there's a lot of, you know, I know and have family members and friends certainly who, whose Jewish identity is rooted more in culture or rooted more in Zionism, uh, Israel. Um, and so I think that's one of the, the beauties and challenges of Jewish identity is that it has always been multifaceted. The question of is Judaism a religion, an ethnicity, a people? Um, You know, for me, it's all of those things at once with religion being a a central piece of it. That's not true for everybody else. Um, But just to respond to your question, Ruthie, that's that's the perspective that I'm coming from in this conversation. Judah, I see you nodding along. Absolutely. And this is the kind of conversation that Gets my head like a bubble doll, a bubble head doll. Um, so I, I'm I'm thinking about this in terms of right. This seems to be a question about curiosity, mm. which is to say, what's within the bounds of what we're allowed to be curious about in terms of our Jewish identity. And she was, I think, I've been talking about this for longer than we might think. Is like, how central is God? And if I'm not curious about God, can I still be curious about Judaism? Um, and so mentioning Hannah Arendt, she tells a great story that when she was a teenager, her more religious grandmother sent her to more religious instruction and she was feeling herself and she wanted to be very rebellious, but she got up in the face of her teacher and she said, you know what? I don't believe in God. And the teacher had a smirk and said, who asked you? Right? Like it's, what authority do you have Hannah Arendt who would become this amazing philosopher and so on? to tell me that your Jewish identity hinges on your curiosity about God, right? Mm. So I think, as Shuli was saying, there's all kinds of ways to be curious. The question is, how much does rooting Jewish identity in the Holocaust limit what we're allowed to be curious about? Yes. And if Hitler's the one telling you that you're Jewish, how much curiosity does that really engender? How much natural curiosity about what about Judaism brings me fulfillment what about Judaism brings me pleasure? What about Judaism brings me into community with other people, right? That seems like a very uh, a, a deep narrowing of the ways you can be curious. Mm. Um, and I just want to pick up on one point that Stephen was making in his nice sort of generational contrast, right, where um, the older generation was interested in assimilation and, and was worried about that. And now that's no longer a question, maybe, that the younger generation is quite as consumed with. If you have a Holocaust-obsessed Jewish identity, you're actually preempting the ability to organically ask questions and become curious about your Jewish identity. Well, it's, it's interesting also hearing 
what you're both are saying, because I, I'm remembering as a teenager, I, I think I was 14 years old, for the, like the first time I saw Orthodox Jews, which is a weird thing to say, but it's actually true. Like we went mm. to this part of Maryland where there, we went to like a kosher deli and I saw people of all ages, you know, wearing kippot and dressed in a certain way and went into the Jewish bookstore and saw, I, I didn't know what the Talmud was. Like, I, I mean, maybe someone had told me that, but I don't remember that. And it kind of clicked for me. Like I, and I felt a real jealousy of those people mm. because I was like, they, I get what they're, I get what yeah, right. they're getting something like I, I didn't quite, which is so weird. And it's, it's weird. It's weird when I, my wife who is not Jewish, but like, this was a concept that's, that was hard for my mom to understand is she's like, well, she's Christian. And I'm like, she's not Christian. Actually. She doesn't believe in Christianity. And she's like, but she's still Christian. And like, that's how we as Jews think about or my yeah. family, at least culture is like, I'm Jewish. I could say I could be Hindu in my beliefs, but I'm Jewish. Do you know what I mean? That's a perfect example. And I think this just shows up in the play, right? Where um, one of the character's spouses gets glossed as Swedish and she corrects quickly yes. and says, I'm Norwegian, right? And basically the question is, what right have you to weigh in on any of these questions? And one of the things that we don't think about is, well, yeah. actually, if Jews don't get to be curious about their own Jewish identity, how much more so do non-Jews get to be curious about Jewish identity, right? They're ruled out from the beginning because even we don't allow ourselves these questions. And this is, you know, it's an interesting question about the Holocaust because the Holocaust in some sense is not supposed to be just a lesson for Jews. It's supposed to be a lesson for mankind. It's supposed to be a lesson for all human beings. Right. So who gets to actually talk about the meaning of that lesson and all of the different component parts of that lesson? I think that's Still, that right that question of curiosity: who's allowed to be curious? I am. I'm a whole hybrid of things. Like I have a lot of extended family who is modern Orthodox, and that family is also Sephardic. I'm Sephardic and Ashkenazi. And for those who don't know, like the Holocaust happened in Europe, and Ashkenazi Jews are, um, you know, Eastern European descended, whereas Sephardic are ancestrally like Spain and the Middle East. Um, so most of those Jews did and like suffered through the Spanish Inquisition or like this Assyrian, you know, exile, but not the Holocaust specifically. And I feel like whenever we're at a holiday or something like the Holocaust really never comes up with my Sephardic cousins, but it is, it was the anchor of like the conservative youth groups I was privy to and, and in Hebrew school. And, you know, this criticism of Michael's that in the play that the Holocaust has become the centerpiece of Jewish life, I guess, like, what should we be teaching in Hebrew school? What do is like, how do we achieve some sort of balance um, I'm even thinking about, you know, like Stephen, the way you're talking about, like the manifestation of a victimization and a neurosis reminds me of when I interviewed James McArdle, who played Lewis in Angels in America, who is, I mean, a Scottish man from Glasgow with the thickest accent you ever heard, the least Jewish person on the planet. And I thought he was a Jew on that stage. And I said, how did you do that? And he said, like, part of it, he was like, well, it's in the posture, like, you know, his his shoulders are up in his ears because it's just that neuroses of we never, you know, Jews eat standing up because you never know when you're going to have to pick up and leave. 
that there's just this ancestral trauma of you never know when you're going to have to go. And so I'm wondering, like, how do we teach that? And how do we continue to pass on this lore, this history, this legacy of people and places without it making us feel stuck? I think that that question is really beginning to be addressed or has already begun to be addressed in Jewish education. And Stephen, I don't know if you have children or you plan to have children. And if you do, I very little. That they're very little. So I, yes. I hope I hope that their Jewish education is very different from the one yes. that you have. And I think if you choose to be in those spaces, you'll find that it is um, because there's really a recognition has been a recognition that Holocaust education should not be the only Uh, or the primary anchor of Jewish education. And I think having taught in Hebrew school, I taught seventh grade, it was probably 20 plus years ago in a reform synagogue (laughs) where Ruthie, I told you this story, I think when we were talking about this, where, you know, everything was the Holocaust. And so we got to the unit that was supposed to be about the Holocaust. And I said to my students, I'm not teaching this. (laughs) We are not doing the unit on the Holocaust because We've done so much Holocaust this year, and there's yeah. so much more. Um, and that was kind of like a shock to them. I don't think you would find that today. I don't. I don't work at, at BJ. My work is with the, our adult community, um, not with our youth. But I. But I have a sense of you know what's being taught and the curriculum, and um, it's very rich. And the, the the driving questions of our Hebrew school curriculum are around. What does God ask of me? How do I bring my voice to the chain of Jewish tradition? How do mm. I find meaning? Um, and those are those are really the primary questions. Even younger Jews now in their 20s on college campuses, I don't think that the Holocaust is the driver of their identity uh, or the mm. anchor of their identity. I mean, I think if you look at what's going on in Hillel's and um, Moisha houses and base and, you know, sort of other communal Jewish spaces, I'm talking now mostly outside of the Orthodox community, um, I think you'll find a lot of younger Jews are really searching for meaning, spirituality, social justice, uh, sort of community, um, as really the drivers of their desire for Jewish involvement. I think that that's that's a very positive thing, number one. Um, And number two, I would say in terms of striking the balance, Ruthie, I think that, you know, Jewish education does not start when you start sending your child to school, right? Mm. Education Mm -hmm. starts when your child is born, right? It's what are you doing in the home? What are you communicating in the home? Yeah. You as a parent um, are are creating an environment of positivity around Judaism, that you're lighting candles every week and it's beautiful and it's special and you're going to touch a butt and it's, it's, there's music and there are friends and right. Like that's going to be the foundation for a child's Jewish identity. And it's not just the Holocaust, by the way. Hold that thought. We're going to take a quick pause. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? 
a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to. Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. And we're back. So, as you were saying... The notion of Jews as victims is uh, right. you know, a long-standing right. history, right? Well, I was going to bring that up, yeah. History, if, that, if you learn that as a... On top of a foundation of Judaism as something positive and celebratory and meaningful and, and life-affirming, um, I, I think, you know, there's a... The, the balance will be more naturally struck. Well, exactly. I mean, I think that that's like the another so many Jewish jokes. But, you know, what's this holiday about? You know, they tried to kill us. We fought. We won. Let's eat. And so that the idea of being a victim goes all the way back to, you know, the boys in Egypt, the the Hebrews before we were even Jews, that the Hebrew boys were being killed. Then we, you know, the the story of Purim is that Haman was trying to kill the Jews in Shushan. So, so again, like how, how do we hold that as part of our history without making it the full identity, Judah? So, right. The way that I, I tend to like to talk about this is that the Holocaust in the Jewish mind does two things or represents two things that makes a normal relationship to your own history like kind of impossible. On the one hand, right, the Holocaust has actually been happening the whole time, which is basically what Ruthie just said, right? It's the oldest experience we've ever had. It's actually the Holocaust is just a recapitulation of the original trauma of Jewish experience, right? It goes back to Egypt. It goes back to Purim. Okay. And yet also, the Holocaust is utterly exceptional, utterly unprecedented. Nothing can be compared to it and stand up to it. Okay. So let me get this straight, right? We have something that's happening all the time, forever. And also, it's radically new. <laughs> how, how, do you, how, how do you experience what's totally radically novel all of the time? How do you make any decisions in that place? You're experiencing mm. the oldest wound cut anew and cut fresh and bleeding fresh every second. And therefore, essentially, you can't do what I would argue, and I think this is how other Jewish traumas have been responded to, right? So don't forget, right? Judaism, as we have it at all, under the auspices of the rabbis in whatever way you take it, the idea that we even pray instead of offer animal sacrifices at the temple, right? That mm -hmm. revolutionary innovation, right, happened in the wake of a catastrophic trauma, 
right? It happened in the mm. wake of the destruction of the temple, in the ending of the Jewish commonwealth, in the ending of the Jewish monarchy, in, in lots of blood and treasure lost, right? And then it took 500 years, more or less, to get some semblance of structure and systematicity in what was to follow. Mm-hmm. So maybe it's just in the nature of trauma that for a while, all you can do is re-experience trauma. But the actual lesson that I think in some sense, and this goes, you know, I harp on the, on the curiosity bit and the constructive bit, in, at some point, you have to turn the history into something that you make something out of, right? Because mm-hmm. it's still a relationship yeah. to history. You don't, and this is maybe my dispute with Michael in the play, or what I would like to offer back to Michael is something like, you know, there's something between rigid and rigidifying memory and forgetting, right? It's right. active memory and creation. Um, uh-huh. So, right. So and it's, it's also what it makes me think of, and I, I love everything you both are saying, it's just so fascinating, but it makes me also think of the universality of those experiences. Like, right. like in a way it is, it is the Jewish experience writ large is this idea of exile and suffering and separation from God and separation from, you know, the divine, but like, that's also kind of the human condition. Um, not, not to get too yeah. general about it, but like, that's also sort of the first noble truth of Buddhism, you know, like that's the, this idea of that there is some fundamental wound in who we are. Right. And that, 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 that's, you know, not to, not to make the history into an abstraction, but to see Judaism as something that can offer all people something, which is like you said, how do you respond to trauma? How do you respond to the destruction of the temple? Do you, does the religion disappear or does a whole new set of renovations and revolutions proceed from that? Mm, And that's kind of amazing. Like that is that idea of humanity just coming up with something brand new. I mean, I know it's all in the oral law was given to Moses and all of that, but like, but, but there was still something incredible that happens there of renovating and, and saying, actually, we can still go on, but different. Like, that's amazing. Well, and that that's the tradition of, of, of clergy in any religion, right? It's why we don't just have books. It's why we continue to have, especially in Judaism, we have rabbis to help interpret and guide in, in the current moment, I would, I would think, but surely you were going to say, I just, I wanted to respond to that. I I think, you know, I, I don't think it's too much of an abstraction. I think you're absolutely right, Stephen, that, that, we could be just as easily be talking about an individual's identity. You know, when you said earlier um, how it's destructive to build identity around a wound, right? That that applies to every human being in the world. Right. Don't right. We, we all have traumas. We all yes. have wounds. Some of us choose, you know, intentionally or or unconsciously to build our identity around those wounds, and some of us choose to say, how do I learn from that and grow and be a stronger person? But that's not the core of who I am. And I think that that is absolutely true for, um, for the, for the Jewish wounds and the Jewish traumas. Uh, you know, Jude, I think your example of, of how rabbinic Judaism was developed over several centuries after the destruction of the second temple is a hundred percent right. I mean, it's amazing to think about what we call Judaism now didn't exist before that time, right? Mm. It was a, it, there was so much innovation and so much creativity. Um, but I would even say that we can go back to 
the, if you want to call it the original trauma of the, of Egypt, right. Of slavery. Mm -hmm. Biblically, the response to that experience is not to dwell in the sense of victimization. Biblically, the response is to say, what do we learn from having lived through a period of slavery? We learn compassion for the stranger. You have to allow the stranger to dwell in your midst and care for the stranger. Because you too were strangers in the land of Egypt. And there's an amazing, we just read it last week, there's an amazing, amazing um Pasuk, a verse in the book of Deuteronomy that says specifically about how you cannot antagonize Egyptians. Why? This doesn't say it in the in the verse, but this is amazing. You would think, oh, I, I spent 400 years, my people spent 400 years being slaves and suffering under the hands of Egyptians. If there's anybody I can antagonize, if there's anybody I can, you know, be violent to, it should be the Egyptians. No, mm. the Torah says. Absolutely not, right? Your human tendency, your human instinct to want to take revenge, you have to curtail that. That's well, a that's... lesson to learn from trauma, right? So wow. if we tell the story, what if we told the story, not as they tried to kill us, uh, we survived, let's eat, but they tried to kill us, we survived, we learned some amazing lessons from that, and we built something new, Right. That's a totally different narrative of identity yes. and what it means to have had trauma in one's identity. So I'm going to yeah. I'm going to play the devil's advocate for a second, because now we're all agreeing and smiling. And yeah, it's very nice <laughs> and we've discovered ways to like plant Judaism in new soil and it's going to grow and bloom and blossom. And that's and and I'm, I'm just going to I'm going to throw a wrench in here and say something like, OK, right. We're saying Jewish collective experience is founded in trauma. So too for human beings of all walks of life, for sure. They're different traumas. They have their own specificity, but right, it's it's a universal experience. Not only that, the lessons of the Torah, as as Shuli was putting so eloquently, right, teach us that we the purpose of looking inward towards our experience is to look outward and to understand something about universal ethics and compassion. And I am I am in I am in full agreement. But here's the question, right? So are Jews different than other people or not, right? Like mm-hmm. what, at what point then, once you've learned the, the lesson well enough, what kind of proprietary claim can you make to the lesson? And I just want to put this in the context of the play a little bit, right? Because Michael says something great. Like he says, uh, we've, we've, learned the, we've learned the wrong lesson, right? He says, we've learned the wrong yep. lesson. We should have learned, and this is actually just what, what Ruthie was reading earlier, We've learned the wrong lesson. What we should have learned is that nationalism is a menace, right? And the implication, mind you, on the Israel politics front, right, is obviously also like, and once we Jews are infected by the the malady of nationalism, we too will reproduce the same logics of exclusion and violence. And And that's that's a very powerful lesson. But what's even interesting just in him wanting to learn that lesson is that he thinks, I think, and please, I have, I have, I have the authority here, obviously, but I think no. he thinks, in some sense, that the Jews, the Jewish people, needed to learn from their own history that they were actually just like everyone else. Right. And what's a little bit ironic about that is that if you are a person 
that has to have your own particular experience in, to, in order to learn that you're like everyone else, what's the upshot? We're not really that much like everyone else. And how much can we relax a little bit and not police that distinction, but assume maybe that both things can happen all at once? Because if you take it into a larger frame, there is something about the fact, right, that the fact that this happened to Jews and the reception of the Holocaust has been what it is, proves something about the value and the preciousness of life rather than what you might think from killing and massacre and torture that human life isn't worth very much. And that's yeah. that it shouldn't only be, right, as I actually was saying, that only Jewish life was worth that much. Well, but it's interesting also because Michael, because I completely agree. I think that is what Michael would say. We're just like everybody else. And yet he's a Jewish studies professor. Like he spends his right. life immersed in this stuff. And to me, there's something and that doesn't answer your question, but there's something in that paradox of we're just like everybody else. And yet I can't get away from my particularity. And I, I keep circling it and I keep coming back to these sources that feels quintessentially Jewish to me, that ambivalence between universality and particularity simultaneously holding belonging and identity versus harmful tribalism is just something that we have to continue to be aware of that it's that you know this idea of actively forgetting the holocaust as a provocation rather than let's actually forget it ever happened is a valuable thing to consider because if you were to more, you know, like freeze it in time and, and teach it as a thing that happened more similar to the way we teach the Passover story or the Purim story as this is a thing that happened to us, but it like maybe without the current threat, you're still a victim. Hitler is still here and looming. Like maybe that's one of one of the ways to to suss it out. And and also the way to to say, you know, there's an organization online called neveragain.com that is about all genocide. Because as Michael so rightly points out in the play, like Bosnia, Rwanda, like I remember Darfur and being like, why aren't the troops going into Darfur? If we say as Jews, never again, and where was the US for however many years we were suffering in Europe, why are we letting people die in Africa? It's all intertwined of like belonging and identity, harmful tribalism, and how that applies to us and others. But Stephen, go I ahead. Think, well, well, I think I think the other part of it, and this goes back to my my own personal experience, which I'm I have to say I'm, I always thought that I had an idiosyncratic like Jewish upbringing and education. So it's fascinating to oh, hear that idea that like that you taught the Holocaust in seventh grade and like that that's not just my I mean, I sort of just assumed it was a little bit my projection, but but I do think that what's missing when you collapse any religion, but Judaism or, or anything into like Reform Judaism could sometimes feel to me at its best like a social justice project, like it was about figuring out a way to 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 help the world, which is great, which is a huge part of it. But what it missed, and that's where the Holocaust came in, very strongly, you know, but what it missed for me, at least was a relationship to the numinous, I would say a relationship to, 
to the tradition in a way that could fuel my spirituality and give me that kind of sustenance. And, and Mm -hmm. that's something I don't think Michael would say. Um, but that's something I would say that like, I feel like that's the thing. And that I have found on my own and in my own research and that, that to me makes Judaism its own particular singular important tradition is, is all of those things that are, that are unique and affirmative and deeply spiritual. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because, so full disclosure, I belong to B'nai Jeshrin um, here in New York, but one of the reasons I, I belong there is because there is an inclusivity and an openness uh, embedded in the fabric of that congregation. And, um, you know, our clergy, we have interfaith families, our clergy performs uh, interfaith marriages, and the requirement to do that for them is that you have to uh, assure and have a plan for a Jewish home. And there are many different ways that that Jewish home and that plan can be uh, manifested. And and Shuli can speak a little bit about this. She she was I know she wasn't there for the decision, and she doesn't perform marriages on behalf of BJ. But um, but that kind of radical inclusivity, I find a beautiful opportunity because I think for so long my Jewish upbringing was tied to the Holocaust, but also this idea of like being Jewish enough. Like, are you too Jewish? Are you not Jewish enough? What side are you on? And and what we're talking about in terms of like what makes Jewish identity, if we're talking about some more spirituality, then like perhaps there are ways to open the doors and that would increase our numbers and our vitality. How do I hold that boundary or those distinctions um, in ways that are... um, that are nourishing uh, and not uh, destructive or damaging. And right. also that are, the boundary is porous enough that it doesn't close off my heart to the rest of the world. You know, the Holocaust and, and incidences prior and incidences since um, comes from the weaponizing of the otherness, right? The active anti-Semitism. The ADL does a report on uh, hate crimes in the country and they have a heat map and all of these things. But there was a statistic that um, 63% of Trump supporters say that being Christian is important to being American. And I think that that's some of the tribalism and the nationalism that we're seeing. How do we best combat anti-Semitism. And maybe Judah, since you're studying questions of anti-Semitism, I'll let you start on that. Sure. So just just about your statistic for a second, which is very interesting, right? The conversation about anti-Semitism cuts in multiple directions at every juncture where it comes up um, Mm -hmm. and has mostly led to a lot of confusion and politicizing and finger pointing and cherry picking of statistics and useful enemies in order to make your broader ideological point, right? Yes. So I, I want to be wary of that and not say anything too general about what anti-Semitism is. 
What I would say is that, you know, and this is, once again, maybe I'm a little too cavalier with the humor here, but, um, right, for some, love is in the eye of the beholder, and for Jews, anti-Semites are in the eye of the beholder, and it's something akin to love. Um, so some of the Christians that you may be talking about, or that at least are included in that statistic, may believe that their view of Christian theology, of their messianic process, etc., actually requires Jewish sovereignty in the land of Israel, right? There's some serious Judeophilia, some real hardcore love of Jews that actually may be expressed in that statistic of it requires Christianity to be a good American. Though that 63% in that statistic are either the greatest lovers of the Jewish people we've ever seen, and there are definitely Jews that feel that way, or they're the greatest <laughs> menace, right, to the Jewish ethical tradition. And, 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 and so that's just, I think that's representative of how sticky and how multifaceted um, the question of anti-Semitism is, because you actually have to be able to reach into your own life and say, this, 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 is, this is what it is for me. Well, let me ask this. How do we, as in American society as a whole, combat the type of anti-Semitism that is the belief that Jews are bad or immoral or lesser and actual hate crimes. So anti-Semitism is, in a certain way, a perfectly impossible thing to combat for two reasons. One, anti-Semitism is usually fueled by a view of Jews that doesn't necessarily see them as lesser than or worse than, um, but actually as... uh, giving them too much credit, that they're responsible for the global banking system, that, you know, the Israel lobby has somehow um, been coddled by the American government and other Western governments because of some extra special treatment. Um, So in some sense, Jews are seen as um, more powerful than they in fact are, which is not the most common form of racism. Um, And secondly, the conversation about anti-Semitism is um, is what gets in the way of fighting anti-Semitism, right? Um, anti-Semitism is a totally unsettled concept. And so most of fighting anti-Semitism just devolves into discussing what anti-Semitism in fact is. Um, so the only thing I have to say about how to combat anti-Semitism is you have to start as close to the ground as possible, which is the realization that the people that are most often subject to anti-Semitic hate crimes and incidents are those that are, you know, outwardly appearing Jewish, Um, you know, Orthodox Jews, um, oftentimes Orthodox men. And that can be difficult because Orthodox men are not necessarily sort of the most usual suspects um, for the broader anti-racism coalition building conversation that happens um, certainly on the internet, but also in the world of activism. Um, So the first thing that I think uh, is required for fighting anti-Semitism is to be in touch with the concrete world where anti-Semitic events, in fact, take place, um, and to listen to those that are most vulnerable to those incidents, even when what they have to say um, is not necessarily, you know, the most felicitous and the most um, uh, recognizable um, for for conversations about anti-racism. What comes out of that, what kinds of coalitions that can be built out of that is still a major question mark. Uh, But I think the first thing is to start as close to the ground as possible. Well, I think for me, anti-Semitism is in many ways a product of tribalism. In my research to talk to you all about this, I I was looking at 
also behavioral psychology and, and evolutionary biology. And it is just in us to trust members of our own tribe that makes us evolutionarily adaptive. And when you are adaptive, you survive. And that fear is a learned response from, you can learn fear three ways. You can learn it through experience. You can learn it through observation, or you can learn it through instruction. And the instruction is where the tribal piece comes in because you're more likely to trust members of your own tribe. And that fear is a fast response. And that logic is a slow response. And it quite literally takes your brain as primates. I learned this. Um, it takes your brain 100 milliseconds, um, for you to describe, for you to see the dichotomies between yourself and another group of people for you, 100 milliseconds for you to go me, them, us, them. And that, that is, you know, uh, that sometimes we're at our worst when we're surrounded by a lot of people who agree with us because it's amplified in that way. And I think that that's where, you know, Michael's argument about the, the thing we actually learned is tribalism and nationalism is the sickness in, in all of its forms. Um, as it relates, and I would say that, you know, Educating in proximity then um, is maybe a good way to start effectively fighting anti-Semitism or any type of bigotry is like when you become closer to the them, then it's more navigable and it's harder to it's harder to hate that which, you know, and I wanted to touch on the Israel piece of this. There is this use of the Holocaust as often as a defense for the state of Israel, that there are moments in the play where Michael's criticism of Israel, his sisters are like, listen to my brother, the anti-Semite, <laughs> and how tied up um, the state of Israel is with anti-Semitism and how I think we're progressing to a place where there, it's not the same thing anymore. You know, you can you can be Jewish and critical of Israel. You can be Jewish and not and be actively anti-Zionist, and that doesn't make you an anti-Semite. But where does the Holocaust serve us or not serve us in relation to the existence of the state of Israel? and grappling with the differences in opinion within our own communities. First of all, I just want to remind us that um, Zionism also predated the Holocaust. So the argument or the line of reasoning that we, we need Israel because of the Holocaust or you know, the Holocaust had to happen so that we could have Israel uh, Zionism was well underway before the Holocaust happened. Now, you could argue that, you know, a lot of Zionism, Herzl certainly was in response to anti-Semitism that he experienced and that he saw in Europe. But there are many different forms of Zionism. Uh, there, you know, there's cultural Zionism, there's religious Zionism. So I think to sort of say, oh, well, Zionism is, is one thing is, is not accurate. Um, and there are many forms of Zionism that are, uh, you know, I would say not articulated as we 
need a haven. Uh, we need a place of safety because we're constantly being persecuted. Uh, there's, there are many forms of Zionism and articulations of Zionism that are far more positive. This is, some of them are theological, right? This is a, this is a uh, having political uh, power and um, ownership over the land of Israel is a fulfillment of of uh, a, you know, a theological promise, a divine promise. Some of them are cultural. That that I think goes to speaks to the uniqueness of uh, the Jewish people, and that there's peoplehood. Right. This is a chad ha'am. The larger argument of well, there's so much anti-Semitism in the world, and there has been, and so we need a haven. Um, that I would my my feeling on that is while that may while that may be true, um, I personally, and I say this as someone who you know, has, has lived in Israel, has a lot of family that lives in Israel, although I'm not Israeli, um, that uh, that doesn't give license for anything and everything to happen in Israel. And yes. that doesn't give license uh, or that doesn't preclude um, one's ability to critique Israel. So the question of, you know, when does critique of Israel become anti-Semitism? When is it anti-Zionism? Is there a difference between anti-Semitism and anti-Zionism? That's, those are, that's a whole other podcast. So there has to be room for nuance in that conversation. Right? I don't think, you know, Michael in the play is very, uh, he's very binary, right? He's very clear. There is no middle ground. There is no space for the possibility of Jewish nationalism and Jewish sovereignty in the land of Israel that isn't unethical. I don't actually think that that's true, but I do think that it's a very, very hard, uh, it's very hard. I mean, it's hard to be a country, right? It's hard to be right. a country. And uh, look at America. We are we are not uh, you know, a nationalist in the sense that we're driven by a, a one particular identity, um, ethnic, racial, religious, cultural. Right. Although there are people right. who want America to be driven by a particular identity. Right. Not. Um, and even so, in what is ostensibly a democracy, um, we have a lot of people who are, uh, I would say, oppressed. And, uh, and there, there's a lot of inequity in this country. It's hard to be a country. Um, so, you know, it's hard to be Israel because Israel is a country. Yeah. Again, one of those places where uh, we're just like everybody else and we're different. Um, right, right. I like mean, it brings me country. back to um, like we did this soft power episode on the podcast and um, we talked about how America is unique in that um, it was founded on ideals rather than on ethnicity or tribe. Mm. And, and that there are many things that have happened since then. And again, like you're saying, there are some people who would like it that way, but as a concept, America is founded on principles rather than, you know, your, your blood lineage, um, which which makes us unique. What's interesting about, about the Zionism piece of Jewish identity and Israel in general, I think is that or what I find problematic about the way that it was taught to me is if 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 a if a specific country in the world is key to your it, or really is one of the only things that's key to your sense of theological identity or, or religious mm-hmm. identity, it's very brittle, you know, and it's very especially in the world today. You look at the uh, uh, you know as Judah was saying the sort of the friends of Israel that you see, you know, the sort of the evangelicals and also sort of the Sheldon Adelsons. And it's like, 
I, I, I would like to have a sense of Jewish identity that's strong enough that Israel does get to just be a country, sort of. Do you know what I mean? That it doesn't have to be. Yes. I didn't, when it became part, in the same way that America is just a country, it's not part of who I, it's not a part of my soul. Do you know what I mean? And, and I get that that, for yeah. some people, they they don't agree with that. And they they do want that. But for me, it's too brittle and it's too fragile to make it. Like, well, it's kind I, I don't of the point you were defend. making yeah. in the macro and the micro is like, does this family fall apart if we don't have this store or are mm. we still a yes, family? Right, exactly. And so, like, do we as a people fall apart if we don't have this country or don't have it the way we imagined it? And the complicated like, part is, you know, Michael to... does say, Michael says, it's just dirt. It's just a store. It's just a place. Yep. And that's not true either. You know what I mean? So right. that's, like you said, there's a, a rigidity in his argument that isn't, both of those things are kind of untenable. And maybe it's in that, in that space that I, I feel very Jewish, at least. Hannah Arendt wrote this book called I've Been in Jerusalem. She famously called, you know, the banality of evil, which has been sort of misconstrued, right? Where she's challenging this, basically this transactional notion that they gave us the Holocaust. And so in recompense, we got Israel which is like a very boiled down version of that. For something to be considered a polity or a community or something that is cohesive, who's to say that you need to have territory in common for that concept to really take root? Counterintuitively now, we're in a a position where there actually, in fact, is a country. Um, And she's saying if it wasn't for 2,000 years of holding traditions in common and innovating in common, there never would have been such a country to come into existence. And so too, there never would have actually been a people for the Nazis to attempt to annihilate. And so what there in fact is, is real continuity between the whole history of the diaspora and what comes into existence in the state of Israel, which actually entitles Israel in a certain historically continuous respect to jurisdiction. What it does not entitle Israel to is a sense of itself as being born out only out of the animosity, right, of non-Jews, only a response to the Holocaust, because its very legitimacy mm. is rooted in a much, much, much longer history. Like, what can Israel actually do for us? It can help us interact with history rather than just stop history dead in its tracks. I personally grapple with um, how can I constructively criticize what I think are injustices happening in the state of Israel without saying that I don't think Israel should exist at all. We have definitely had an incredible conversation. So to leave us, I want to ask you both personally and professionally, um, how would you like to see us preserve each other and ourselves? In the, in the very immediate future, I would say, like, what would you like to see this year? In January, uh, the Jewish world started anew the cycle of studying Talmud, one page a day. It takes mm-hmm. seven and a half years to complete. It's called Daf Yomi, the daily page. So seven and a half years ago or eight years ago when my son was born and the previous cycle started, I said, I'm going to start in the next cycle. So... Along came January, and uh, and I said, oh, I said I was going to start this time, so I guess I'm going to start. Oh, my gosh. So I started Daf Yomi, and I teach a weekly class at BJ on Zoom. Um, 
And it's fascinating the people who are in the class. I would say most of them are, are folks, um, you know, adults from the community, older adults largely, who didn't have much of a Jewish education growing up. Um, either, you know, something along the lines of what you described, Stephen, uh, or not at all. And only through BJ and through not just my class, but also classes that they've taken over the years, have they come to feel a sense of meaning in their Judaism. Uh, mm-hmm. That you know, there's something that brought them to BJ, the music, a friend told them to come, and the richness of the prayer experience, even though they couldn't necessarily understand every word, the, the classes, the intellectual engagement, and that, you know, for many folks at, at, at BJ, in, in those who come to this class and, and many others, um, I think that has led them to a journey of greater connection to things that are very positive about Jewish practice and Jewish community that have really enriched their lives. And so I think that's what I would, would say, you know, and that's mm-hmm. what I want to see is, is more people saying, how, do, how can I find something that's going to touch my heart and my soul in Judaism? Mm-hmm. Um, I, I'm going to take a class. I'm going to start lighting candles on Shabbat. I'm going to turn off my phone on Shabbat and be with my family. I'm, I'm going to learn something new. I'm going to start going to services, whether it's you know, one day we'll get back to services in person or services online. And I'm going to find <laughs> something that I can really connect with and, and have that be positive and enriching and, and do it in a way that, that is really spiritual and soulful and connects me to my sense of Jewish identity and Jewish community and maybe even to God. Um, yeah. and, and that's like, I think that's really my hope for the Jewish people this year. That's like on a very, yeah. very micro level. I'm going to give two answers. The first answer I would say um, is for those that maybe are already doing many of the things that Shuli mentioned and actually feel like Judaism is in some sense a hearth. And I think for those people that really experience Judaism as a hearth, what I would say the best thing you could do is to really forget the instinct to protect for a moment and try to understand, right, the feeling of fear and unhappiness that for certain Jews who are really active in a political and in a, in a social justice sense, the kind of injury they think that the reputation of Judaism is suffering under all kinds of conditions. Where the opposite answer is just for those that are out there fighting the good fight, right, and are mostly experiencing Judaism as a moment to criticize and as a moment to, to draw battle lines, find a heart, right? It's much. It's basically Shuli's answer. And my extra appeal as a family that comes from a very diversely situated background, find a hearth with people that if you were in the streets fighting politically, you know you'd be on opposite sides. But try to try to experience what it's like to be warmed at the same time as someone that you might be in an argument with when the question comes to politics. So those are those are two answers for, for differently mm. situated communities. I know there are mm. there are far more. Those, those, those both meant a lot to me, and I want to think about both of those. My my only personal answer is that we started lighting the candles with my, um, almost five-year-old. And I, I, it's one of those things where I'm not, I'm not entirely sure why, you know, and I'm not entirely sure what, but it, yeah. it's incredibly meaningful and it's, it's been meaningful to me and it's been meaningful to her and she knows the prayers now. And it, there, there's something about it that, I don't know, it's, it's that hearth that you're talking about. And, and it's, yeah, I don't know. 
It's something. Yeah. Great. No, I think that's beautiful. Steve, well, and you're welcome to come to BJ. Yes. Yes. Online or in person. Do you live in New York now? Yes, I do. I live in Brooklyn now, so. That's okay. We've got lots of people in Brooklyn. <laughs> yes, and I guess it doesn't even matter. Yes. So we I know. I was going to say. to find your heart here, too. Yes. Well, yeah. that sounds amazing. I mean, it's the best, but, you know, I would just, you know, for my personal ad is like this, the inclusivity, the inclusivity that, um, find your hearth, whatever it is. I like this metaphor. Um, and that, that is enough. That is enough to make you Jewish. That is enough to be Jewish. And I, and I think that that's true across identities. And then, um, you know, to, to learn the lesson that Michael is trying so hard to drive home just to get closer to one another and, and learn from history, um, and become, you know, use our, use the things that are currently dividing us to actually unite us and use as opportunity to get to know each other and differences. So thank you all for being here today. This is incredible. We did it. Thank Thank you, Ruthie. This is so fun. Thanks, guys. Why We Theater is a product of the Broadway Podcast Network. It's edited and mixed by Derek Gunther. If you like the show, subscribe at bpn.fm slash WWT or Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to leave a review and tell your friends. Our theme music is by Benjamin Velez. Why We Theater is recorded in part on the traditional lands of the Wappinger and Lenape peoples. I acknowledge this land was unjustly taken from them and pay my respect to elders both past and present. Special thanks to Dory Berenstein, Alan Seals, Lee Silverman, Patrick Taylor, Tony Montaneri, Wesley Birdsall, Elena Mayer, and Suzanne Chipkin. For more resources for change, info about our guests, and more, visit us at whywetheater.com. Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.